0: Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Treatment Update on Liver Cancer and Managing the Cost of Care. Um, And this is an important program and one that we have waited to do for a long time, actually, and it's a collaborative program between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well, So, that, and as well as a liver cancer organization as well. So, we're very happy to have all of you on the call today. We have on the call today over 384 participants, and you come from all over the United States, from different parts of the United States, from both um, rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Venezuela, and the United Kingdom. So, a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, ISAI, Inc., and a charitable contribution from Exalexis, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, I'd like to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Ahmad Kassab. Dr. Kassab is Associate Professor and Director, of the Hepatocellular Carcinoma Program, Gastrointestinal Medical Oncology Department, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and he's Editor-in-Chief, Journal of Hepatocellular Carcinoma. And Dr. Cassette is going to address overview of liver cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It is now my great uh, privilege, and I'm um, delighted to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kassab.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, So today the topic uh, will be focusing on uh, liver cancer. And when we refer to liver cancer, um, uh, we have to differentiate is it primary, uh, meaning that it originated in the liver, or it's a spread uh, from another organ to the liver. So today's focus is going to be the primary liver cancer, which originated in the liver itself. So we have um, the main kind, which is called hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, which refers to liver cell cancer. There are um, less common kinds such as uh, bile duct cancer and gallbladder cancer, but the most common type of liver cancer is hepatocellular carcinoma, which is our main focus today. Um, so, when it comes to overview of liver cancer, I always like to start with um, risk factors. Um, to mention a few, the most common Risk factor for liver cancer is um, uh, hepatitis, and it could be hepatitis C in the US and Europe, it could be hepatitis B in Asia. So, globally, um, the most common cause for liver cancer is um, always related to hepatitis. However, In the Western world, we're experiencing a major shift um, to what we call fatty liver and metabolic syndrome, or NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Um, So, a majority of cases in the U.S. nowadays are non-hepatitis-related in patients who have uh, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, or um, uh, dyslipidemia, or high cholesterol. So eventually uh, their liver can form more fat and and eventually starts to um, um, uh, progress to scarring tissue in the liver, what we call cirrhosis, and then eventually liver cancer. Um, so that's in terms of the risk factor. How about screening? Uh, there are some guidelines that our liver specialists in primary care um, usually follow for anybody with established chronic liver disease, in particular scarring tissue or cirrhosis, they get an ultrasound once every six months. How about after diagnosis? What are the treatment options? So we always like to divide it into two big categories. First one is liver cancer that is still limited to the liver, uh, didn't um, spread outside. Uh, so in these cases, we. Um, uh, look into the underlying liver condition if there is a lot of scarring tissue or cirrhosis. The only surgical option is liver transplant to get rid of both conditions, the cancer and the scarring tissue um, that lead to cancer in the first place. However, it is very limited to uh, small tumors to avoid uh, any cancer recurrence. Um, If the liver has got a lot of scarring tissue and tumors are big um, and we cannot offer any liver transplant, then we go for localized therapies. Um, And I lump lump them together after I uh, finish the overview of the treatment. And then patients with disease limited to the liver and um, they have no evidence of scarring tissue, so they have very healthy liver, there is a, a room for surgical resection. And um, so we always consult our surgeons and at that point, And if they could go for surgery, it is curative. And then patients who cannot go for surgery because of the um, size of the tumor location, they go for localized therapy, which basically either... Um, ablation, burning the tumor with a needle, and that's for very small tumors, um, less than 3 centimeters. Larger tumors uh, could undergo catheter treatment from the groin up like having a hard cath, and we directly inject either chemotherapy or radiation spheres to the liver if they are not surgical, whether the liver has got scarring or not. And then, uh, finally, patients with a disease that metastasize or spread outside the liver or when inside the portal vein, right underneath the liver, uh, for those patients we offer um, drugs or what we call systemic therapy. So that takes me to the second point, which is the current standard of care. So we spoke about um, surgery, transplant Um, for limited disease in the liver, no spread, and then localized therapy for small tumors in the liver not amenable for surgery or transplant. Now let's talk a little bit about the um, systemic therapy or drugs available to treat uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. So frontline, what we call uh, frontline, means that um, the uh, first line of therapy that we start with is mainly two drugs, um, Nexavar and the other drug is called Linvima. So these are oral drugs. We call them targeted therapy and um, designed uh, to um, attack the tumor and prevent um, the blood supply from expanding the tumor. Uh, So mainly they lead to um, containing the tumor. They don't lead to cure um, mainly stabilizing the tumor with sometimes we see some shrinkage but that's about it that's why a lot of patients go from front line to second line so after they progress on these two drugs we offer other another line of therapy which is second line and that's where immunotherapy um, comes to the picture so recently in the last year we had two drugs you know approved for liver cancer with immunotherapy, nivolumab, and pimpolizumab. um, These two drugs also uh, stabilize the tumors, um, and um, they offer a better tolerance to patients than uh, the oral drugs, obviously, because they're given both as IV. And we had also some uh, more drugs approved in this second-line setting, oral drugs in the form of pills. So, this is the standard of care, either surgery, um, transplant for small tumors, localized therapy for small tumors not amenable for surgery or transplant, and then a systemic therapy in the form of drugs. Um, My last point um, here um, to discuss is the new treatment approaches. So, uh, basically, since we only have either oral drugs or IV drugs in the space of advanced disease, we always try to push the envelope and improve the outcome by combining different drugs. So. Um, uh, targeted therapy and immunotherapy, for example, and there are some nice signals um, um, shown there. So that's why nowadays we have large, decisive studies to compare the combination versus single drugs. So um, hopefully, in the next year, gain access to combination drugs that can improve response and survival in our patient population, also combining systemic therapy in particular immunotherapy with localized therapy approaches I mentioned a few of them such as the ablation for small tumors um, catheter treatment through the um, artery supplying the tumor itself uh, going from the growing up and then injecting directly um, so um, and also combining with radiotherapy so all of these approaches are being um, tried nowadays um and these approaches could r- really lead to improvement in overall survival specifically if we were able to downsize the tumors um mm-hmm. and um, enable one of the curative options that I've mentioned up front in terms of um surgery or or transplant because unless we get there there is uh, no therapy that can really make the tumors disappear so we have to downsize them to enable curative options such as surgery or transplant. Uh, so that's where we are. Um spoke a little bit about the overview on standard of care and where um, the future is is, is heading. Um, and um, that will conclude my um, presentation, and uh, I will be ready for any question any time.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kaurav. That was really wonderful. Um, excellent and uh, wonderful setting the stage for the program today and giving everyone some of the options for treatment. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. James Harding. Dr. Harding is assistant attending Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Developmental Therapeutic Center, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Harding is going to present on the role of clinical trials, controlling symptoms, side effects, and pain, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life, your quality of life, and any financial concerns that you may have. Um, it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Harding. Uh,
3: thank you very much, and uh, thank you for having me today. So uh, the first area that I'll discuss are, are clinical trials, and when we think about clinical trials, you can divide those into two major areas. Um, uh, therapeutic and non-therapeutic clinical trials. Uh, non-therapeutic clinical trials are when scientists and physician scientists are trying to understand the biology of cancer uh, and or understand um, how a patients perceive their treatment or really any investigation related to cancer, including liver cancer. Uh, and often these are clinical trials where patients are approached and They're asked if they are able to donate some of their blood or uh, prior tissue from a surgery and or a biopsy with the hope of learning from that uh, and understanding the biology of cancer and ultimately its treatments. So commonly across the United States now, uh, many academic centers will have non-therapeutic clinical trials where patients may be asked to donate tissue with the purpose of trying to understand, for example, example, how is a particular drug working for you or to understand the genes that are causing a liver cancer to grow. Um, These studies are generally um, uh, uh, really um, altruistic in nature and help, I think, everyone in general to understand uh, cancer treatment and and outcomes with cancer, Uh, and so often both patients and physicians are very encouraging to um, have patients to participate in those studies. Uh, With regard to therapeutic clinical trials, uh, this is where uh, we are investigating new treatments for cancer, Uh, and this can occur at all of the various stages of liver cancer. Uh, This can be for patients that are undergoing a transplant at an early stage, or for those that have more advanced disease that may have spread to other parts of the body, this may be looking at a new drug. And for simplicity, I'll focus on you know the latter um, when we think of clinical trials, we divide them into phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one clinical studies are when we are trying to understand how safe is a drug. We understand that it is active in models of cancer, particularly liver cancer, but we now want to understand how is the best way to give it to a patient how is it what is its safety profile, and what is the actual dose that we should give. And so right now across the United States and across the world, there are several phase one clinical studies looking to assess the safety of a variety of new types of drugs, uh, uh, for patients with liver cancer. A phase two clinical study is when we understand the safety of a drug, we understand the dose of a drug, what's the best dose to give, but we want to learn more about how much activity there might be uh, for that uh, drug uh, uh, in, in relationship to cancer. Uh, and once we've established some level of activity, we often move to phase three, which is when we can Compare uh, the new drug to what is the current standard of care. Uh, and thankfully for liver cancer, at least in the advanced and metastatic setting, there are several phase 3s across the United States and across the world that are ongoing, uh, looking at, as Dr. Kassab said, to see how the current therapies uh, can be improved with combination and or to see which therapy might be better. Uh, so, for example, a phase 3 study that recently completed, and we are waiting for as a phase 3 study of nivolumab, which is an immunotherapy, versus serafinib for patients uh, with um, uh, liver cancer that has progressed on prior uh, uh, regional or surgical therapies or has spread so that those are not an option. That's an example of a phase 3. In addition, there are several other phase threes that are ongoing. Uh, For example, currently there is a study of of um, uh, the drug serafinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, versus two forms of immunotherapy, uh, uh, one being dervalumab, the other dervalimab with uh in patients with advanced liver cancer. Another study is looking at lenvima versus um, uh, pembrolizumab in the frontline setting for the same patient population. Uh, not only are these studies happening uh, in, for Patients that are not candidates for surgery and/or um, uh, uh, transplant, but they're also happening now at earlier stages of disease. Uh, for example, um, Dr. Kessab is leading an important study of looking at neoadjuvant combination immunotherapy uh, for patients that are uh, uh, hopefully going to be going to surgical resection. Uh, we here have been leading a study of nivolumab with Debtase for patients with liver-limited liver cancer, uh, and so on. So there is an extensive amount of of clinical trial activity in liver cancer, Uh, and for more information, you can contact academic centers or look on clinicaltrial.gov that usually has a running list of active studies. Uh, Shifting from clinical trials to symptom management, at any time during a cancer diagnosis there may be symptoms related to the disease, liver cancer is a little bit more complex because, as Dr. Kessab said, often it occurs in patients that have underlying cirrhosis or liver damage. And so it's very important for a, a- team of both medical oncologists and hepatologists to help manage symptoms related to cancer uh, and cirrhosis. So this might be um, excessive fluid on the body that's called edema. That may be treated with diuretics or other procedures. Um, uh, For um, other patients with liver cancer, they may have confusion and there are medications that can be used uh for that purpose. Uh and finally, um, uh there may be issues of pain or not wanting to eat and, and these all need to be managed and these all need to be discussed with a healthcare provider uh because it is quite complex. Um, finally, when discussing treatment, specifically systemic treatment, there are a number of side effects may occur, and those can be uh, side effects for an individual patient, as well as financial hardships and toxicities. Uh, so with regard to side effects from medicinal therapy for liver cancer, Dr. Kassab mentioned tyrosine kinase inhibitors like lemvatinib or serafinib. These drugs may raise the blood pressure, they may cause certain rashes reddening of the hands and feet, uh, as well as upset stomach. For all of these, there are treatments, uh, some of which are holding the drug or um, giving um, uh, supportive medications and most of these things do work at managing symptoms. For the immunotherapeutics, there is a different class of side effects where the immune system can be activated against any part of the body. Um, And these often require holding the immunotherapy, providing steroids or some form of immunosuppression. And so it's very important if you have or are on an active treatment for liver cancer to contact your primary doctor. Uh, And then finally, um, with any um, form of cancer therapy, there is financial side effects. These medications are very expensive, uh, and cancer care in general is expensive, and uh, uh, there are several ways is to have additional support for your cancer treatment. Um, many centers do have philanthropic support to help patients support their treatment. Others, um, uh, companies specifically, have uh, forms that can be filled out uh, to reduce the cost of FDA-approved medications. And then there are a number of other organizations that I think would be discussed that can provide additional support and transparency regarding the cost of medical care. Um, and so that's all that I had planned to say. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harding, and um, I'll look forward to the questions for you um, during the Q&A. However, um, very excellent presentation, outstanding, and covering a lot of excellent topics for people to be aware of. And also going through the different phases of clinical trials, people can understand that. There may be questions for for you on that as well during the Q&A. Our next speaker, is Ms. Diana Burton. Ms. Burton is a dietitian. She's an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBake EPA Medical Center. And Ms. Burton is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burton.
4: ...concerns in the presence of liver cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance to treatment and provide you the energy to do the things you enjoy. Ideally, a plant-based diet um, is what we want to aim for, and this is used for prevention, during treatment, and in survivorship. Um, It translates into about having two-thirds of your plate from a plant-based food, such as a whole grain, fruits, veggies, um, nuts, and seeds. The benefit from plant-based foods is they give us several things, um, including antioxidants, phytochemicals, fiber, um, just to name a few. Uh, to get your fruits and veggies in, fresh or frozen are actually the best forms. Um, canned uh, tend to be more depleted in their, in their nutritional value. Um, But the real key when we look at our plant-based foods is giving a variety of colors. The color actually tells us a lot about the food. Um, The color of the food can translate to us the nutrients that it is more abundant in. Example, um, red lycopene, orange beta carotene. So the color really does um, tell us what we need to know. So the other third of your plate should be, focus more on the lean protein. Now, lean protein is very important um, for all for, for everybody at all stages, but primarily with liver cancer, um, if you have surgery, um, you may hear the team talk with you about wanting to make sure you're getting enough protein in. And some good sources of protein include wild-caught fish, um, this... Um, particular type of fish that we want to look for are the cold water fish. They're higher in um, omega-3s, you may have heard of anti-inflammatory components of food. Well, um, the cold water fish are your your perfect solution for getting in those anti-inflammatory components. And these types of fish include halibut, salmon, tuna, sardines, um, herring, if if those are some things that, that sound good to you. And it's fine that they're in a can. Um, a lot of patients don't realize that actually getting um, canned fish, as long as it's wild caught, is just as good as getting it from, from the fish department. So poultry also falls into a lean protein. And bringing in protein from a plant-based food is also good. So bringing in peas, uh, beans, lentils uh, are a great, a great way to get in some additional protein from a plant-based food. But the reason why protein is so important is because it's the building block for our cell and tissue um, development. And so whenever you're healing, this is why it becomes very important. And when you have liver cancer, it's also very important because your liver is, um, is in repair mode and you want to uh, provide your body with the protein it needs to do that. Now, there might be times where taking a supplement or modifying your diet becomes part of the conversation between you and your healthcare professional. And um, it was mentioned earlier in the discussion about Um, You know, appetite can be a a challenge that patients face, um, and and that is very common just depending on your circumstances. Fluid restriction may also be a part of the conversation. So, again, based on your unique circumstances, um, the medical team may adjust um, components of your diet um, to best um, help you tolerate treatment and um, and do do for the best outcomes. Now, um, supplements outside, such as herbs and um, vitamins and things like that, really talk with your healthcare care team. Um, a lot of times these items aren't verified. We don't know what's in them, and we're not really sure how it will always react with the medications you're receiving and how your liver will receive them. So anything that the doctor has not prescribed for you, definitely run it by them before you take it. It may seem benign, but it could actually um, be pretty impactful um, in the long run. Again, um, you know, hydration is also part of this um, conversation, so I don't want to forget to just mention that dehydration can actually increase um, symptoms such as nausea, fatigue. um, Being dehydrated can also leave you feeling dizzy, So fluid is important to take throughout the day, and fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, and most patients um, who are not on a fluid restriction need between 8 and ten ounce glasses of fluid a day. But again, based on your unique needs, um, your team may um, guide you more specifically um, based on what your needs are. Um, Always remember, if you're experiencing side effects, um, struggles with foods, intake, appetite, keep a log, um, communicate with your healthcare team, seeing what you're experiencing on paper for the practitioner can help them um, best formulate a way to help support you. And so I'll always take notes if something doesn't seem right or if there's a change. A dietitian is available, They can, we can provide you with the energy um, recommendations, calorie protein recommendations, diet changes um, to help meet your needs during this time. Um, with that, I'm going to end my, my portion and thank you for allowing me to be, to par- be a part of today's workshop. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was really wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, lots of good information, and I, there are always questions for you during the Q&A. <laughs> so um, thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Marie Rodriguez. Ms. Rodriguez is an oncology social worker. She is director of patient assistance programs at Cancer Care. And Ms. Rodriguez is going to be addressing coping with direct medical costs, related non-medical costs, and daily living expenses, of financial assistance, and cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rodriguez.
5: Thank you, Dr. Messner. It is a pleasure to be able to speak to you all today. Um, Cancer is a very expensive illness, as Dr. Harding mentioned. For people without insurance, the direct medical cost can be a serious obstacle to obtaining care. But even for those with insurance, most are unprepared for the out-of-pocket expense of their cancer treatment. Some of these costs can include direct medical costs, which include doctor's fees, hospital charges, and medication costs which may or may not be covered, even if you have health insurance. For example, many people find that their insurance provides only limited coverage for prescription drugs. Oftentimes, this is discovered when insurance is needed most, when there's a diagnosis or a medical issue that arises and you are in need of coverage. This is why knowing your insurance plan is very important. Understanding ahead of time which treatments and medical services your insurance covers and whether you are still responsible for any out-of-pocket expenses is crucial. A good first step is to contact your insurance company using the telephone number found on the back of your insurance card. If your insurance denies a claim, please visit the website healthcare.gov. They have an excellent guide on how to dispute claims. Generally they discuss two types of appeals, an internal appeal and an external review. An internal appeal is where your claim has been denied or your coverage canceled and you you have the right to an internal appeal, asking the insurance company to conduct a full review of its decision. An external review, this is where you have the right to take your appeal to an independent third party for review which means your insurance company no longer gets the final say over when to pay a claim. Staying on top of medical bills is another important task. The consequences of medical debt are staggering and unfortunately all too common. Medical debt can be a major burden and a source of continuing stress for many living with cancer. If you find yourself getting behind on paying medical bills, there are resources that may be able to help. One of them is the Patient Advocate Foundation. They have case managers that can provide guidance and support and can intervene on your behalf regarding medical debt. You can call them at 1-800-532-5274 or visit their website at www.patientadvocate.org. Another source of support when having issues with your insurance is your hospital's financial department. They have experience in dealing with their insurance companies and are the only ones that can help you if you need to pay. They can help you estimate what monthly amount you will be able to pay. At times, can locate some charitable charitable programs that will help you. Also, it is very important that as soon as you start experiencing financial issues related to your diagnosis that you can discuss this with your medical team to ensure that a lapse in treatment does not occur as a result. They can also help you navigate these issues and refer you to the hospital social worker or financial navigator at your institution. It is important to know where to turn if you are being contacted by collection agencies due to outstanding medical bills. There is a website that you can visit where you would be able to direct you to programs within your state that may provide you with legal, free legal programs, information, and forms specific to your state. To find out further, you can visit www.lawhelp.org. On top of the direct costs, you may find yourself also dealing with related non-medical costs, and these include the cost of transportation to and from treatment, over-the-counter medications, home care and medical devices or supplies, which can add up. These costs are usually not covered by health insurance and must be paid out of pocket. Daily living expenses may also be affected, which include the cost of food, childcare, housing, utilities, and other daily living expenses, which may suddenly become more difficult to pay if a person with cancer or a caregiver needs to stop working. Please know that if you're encountering any financial hardships, that there are organizations that can help you. Some great resources to find local organizations that help based on your location and type of cancer can be found in the Patient Advocate Foundation. They have a national resource guide which can be found at their website, www.patientadvocate.org. So as well as the national resource guide, there's also the searchable database that the American Cancer Society has. And basically, there's, it's a wonderful searchable database that you can utilize simply by going to cancer.org or calling their 800 number at 1-800-227-2345. Within the American Cancer Society searchable database, you input your zip code, type of cancer, and a keyword, and they will direct you to local or national organizations that may be able to help. Now, I will briefly review Cancer Care and its programs and services. Cancer Care provides free individual and group support to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care's cancer focused emotional support is available in English and Spanish and centers on the emotional and practical challenges that arise from cancer. Oncology social workers provide short-term, strength-based emotional support and may also assist in locating practical assistance, including community resources. They're a great resource to call on if you are experiencing any of the hardships we discussed today. So some of the services that are provided are, as I mentioned, counseling. They're offered in person and telephone to the patients, caregivers, newly bereaved, in person at our local offices, and children as young as five. Cancer Care Oncology social workers can help you with many different issues. Some would be provide cancer-focused support, help reduce feelings of anxiety and distress as a result of the financial stress help increase feelings of hope and empowerment, assist you in learning new ways of coping, help you improve communication with your medical team and loved ones, provide you with practical information about treatment, and provide you with resources in your community. We also have many different support groups, which are offered in person, telephone, and online on a 12-week cycle. You must be screened and register in order to participate. We also offer Connect Education workshops, such as the one we're currently on. We have publications available online, a vast amount, and you can download and print free of charge. And we have a financial assistance program in which we offer limited financial assistance for things such as transportation to and from treatment, home care, child care. We have various different community programs which can all be found and listed on our website. In order to apply for any of our programs, please call our helpline at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website to get more information on how we can help you at www.cancercare.org. Thank you. I now turn the program back to Dr.
2: Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Rodriguez. That was really outstanding. Thank you very much. And um, we now do have time for questions. Um, and so um, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, and I'm going to ask Sonia to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And um, if we don't get to all your questions at the end of the call, I'll tell you how to get your questions answered. But let's see how well we can do now. Uh, Sonia?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then 1.
1: I have a question from one of our online participants. Um, And um, so the question is for... um, Dr. Um, Cassad, um can you repeat the second line of treatment names of drugs, please?
2: Sure, so um, let's start with immunotherapy. So two drugs are approved, um, second line uh, for um, hepatocellular carcinoma by FDA. The first one is called Opdivo, um, and the um, other one is Keytruda. K-E-Y-T-R-U-D-A. And then there's a couple of other drugs um, that are also getting approved um, very soon. Um, The one that has been already approved um, is called Stivarga, S-T-I-V-A-R-G-A, and also uh, Capozantinib, C-A-B-O-N-T-A-V-I-N-I-B. And there is a couple of others, but they're not approved yet by the FDA. Um, They will be approved soon um, throughout the rest of the year.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, And a question for um, uh, for Dr. Harding. Um, um, I have hepatitis C and want to know if you can give any advice about reducing the risk of liver cancer.
3: Um so um uh, so for uh, patients that have hepatitis C uh right now uh within the last few years there have been several new antiviral drugs that have been um uh, approved for the treatment of viral hepatitis C and and these drugs are actually quite effective and and they lead to viral clearance Uh, in a high proportion of patients, uh, like 90-95% or higher of patients will have uh, the HCV virus eradicated. Uh, uh, and and these are being used for patients with HCV and cirrhosis uh, without evidence of liver cancer. Uh, It's unclear uh, if clearing the virus will ultimately improve cirrhosis uh, and it's unclear if this will ultimately reduce the risk of liver cancer and more information is required on that front for sure. Um, uh, it, It is um uh it is clear though that for those patients that do have a high risk of liver cancer, namely cirrhosis uh uh and 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 age uh ideologies like h c v or h b v uh there are some data to screen for liver cancer um with uh ultrasonography and cross sectional imaging uh and the way to find out more about that would be to meet with a hepatologist that focuses uh in that space. Thank you. Thanks. Um
1: and um another question. Um so um this question for Dr. Kassab. Um, long term alcohol abuse increases the risk of liver cancer. At what consumption level does alcohol become a serious risk factor? <laughs>
2: (laughs) So, um, from the epidemiology standpoint, there are some studies that looked into that, and um, they they have different cut points, you know, they characterize how many grams of alcohol, and then you have to calculate, you know, depending on your drink, um, whether it's beer or alcohol or wine, you know, in terms of how much percentage and also how much volume are you drinking. In general, it's between, you know, 20 to 40 grams of alcohol a day, but um differs from um um one ethnicity to uh, to another um we know that um asian americans don't um tolerate you know um higher levels of alcohol and they could get they could get some injury with lower um threshold so it really depends on the specific situation gender and ethnicity um but it's a good discussion to have with your with your primary care physician for sure
1: Thank you. Um, And this question um, for Dr. Harding. Um, Is it true that children can sometimes contract hepatitis B infection from prolonged contact with family members who are infected? Should I worry about my children getting liver cancer? Um, Yeah, should I worry about my children getting liver cancer?
3: Uh so uh, you know, I guess the question really um, to ask uh, specifically would be uh, a pediatrician. Uh so uh for children uh and um, uh you know their 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 treatments uh and and and, and essentially um, their vaccination schedule, a pediatrician would really be able to answer that question. In the United States it's routine that um, children are vaccinated for hepatitis B, uh, and there is, you know, a well-established paradigm for that. So most children in the United States are naturally immune to hepatitis B. Uh, and and so I think if there is a concern about vaccinations and, you know, hepatitis and viral hepatitis, the best place to ask would really be, I, I think, the primary pediatrician.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um do we have a, another question um I, uh, I'm requesting actually um, this would be for dr Harding um, a review of some of the clinical trials for liver cancer that are available now
3: well i mean i and I think uh, you know that, this is um it's you know great um to see so many potential clinical studies that are open for liver cancer uh and you know there are uh, probably hundreds of studies that are being run at various stages for liver cancer, phase 1, 2, and 3, and a number of centers, as I said, have uh, non-therapeutic clinical trials. And I think in the context of this discussion, it's hard to really talk about all of the the ongoing studies. Uh, what I will say in the metastatic setting or the advanced setting, so patients that can't have surgery, uh, can't have transplant, have failed embolization, and several um studies are 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 looking at is immunotherapy better than tyrosine kinase based treatment alone or is combination immunotherapy better than tyrosine kinase-based treatment alone, or is a novel combination, specifically immunotherapy with um, antibodies to, to, um, uh, to a protein called VEGF or VEGFR2, is that better uh, than a standard TKI-based treatment in the Phase three space? Um, at earlier stages of disease, there's a Phase three. studies study looking at after removal of my liver cancer with surgery and or ablation, uh, watching it or giving immunotherapy with nivolumab. Uh, For patients that have liver-limited liver cancer, uh, several pilot studies are ongoing looking at giving immunotherapy uh, with yttrium-90 or um, uh, embolization, uh, and there are large phase three studies that are planned. um, uh, and, And so I think there are a number of potential choices in that regard, and that really needs to be delineated by the treating medical oncologist or hepatologist and I would also ask, Dr. d do, 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 do you have anything else to add with regard to that? It's such an active time for us. Uh, it's hard to keep track of all of them.
2: Yes, I, I totally agree with Dr. Harding and between me and him because it's such a small community. We always meet up uh, to discuss uh, the uh, potential uh, of incorporating immunotherapy in particular and other drugs, either combination, you know, in uh, patients with advanced disease or um, also combined with localized therapies for um, disease that is limited to the liver. So, Dr. Harding mentioned um, 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 her, his center's study looking at catheter treatment approach combined with immunotherapy. We have a study at uh, MD Anderson uh, to do immunotherapy before surgery. So, The field is moving so fast, not only in treating patients with advanced disease with different combinations, but even more important to move up our approaches to early stage um, um, to um, enable curative options. So I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see more and more talks about um, small tumors that could get even smaller with uh, combination therapies and localized and, and, and systemic therapy to enable surgery or transplant. And that's our goal as uh, you know, oncologists, to um, look for curative options for our patient population. So it's definitely a, a very exciting time.
1: And a question from one of all my participants, Dr. Um, um If the um, liver cancer is localized in the liver due to the meds, due to the meds, can a patient having a liver donor transplant?
2: Yeah, good question. So um, very few centers in the United States offer living donor transplant um, because it is not as straightforward. There, uh, uh, There are some associated complications. Um, um, because the the patients don't get the whole liver. They get part of the liver and uh, uh, they connect artery to artery and bile duct to bile duct. So sometimes there there are some issues with healing and leakage and all of that. So um, um, very few centers around the United States do it, and even those who do, they still... Um, um, go by the same guidelines, almost um, uh, for the um, orthotopic or in deceased donor transplant. So the tumors have to still be small. They cannot be outside the liver, um, because we really don't want to get into this scenario where the patient, you know, get, gets the new liver, whether it's from living donor or deceased donor, and then uh, low immunity setting, and then the cancer comes right back and becomes even more aggressive.
1: Thank you wonderful it's wonderful questions a wonderfully informed audience here and wonderful speakers as well this is so terrific um so um so the question is um and this one is for dr harding is cirrhosis of the liver the same as liver cancer
3: i'm sorry could you repeat that
1: oh yes um is cirrhosis of the liver the same as liver cancer yeah.
3: Oh no! So, um, so, so, cirrhosis uh, and liver cancer are not the same. Cirrhosis refers to scarring of the liver, uh, and scarring of the liver can happen because of a variety of medical illnesses. Uh, so, for example, as Dr. Kassab mentioned, viral hepatitis, hepatitis C and hepatitis B. These are viruses uh, that people can contract, and uh, they can inflame the liver and cause scarring of the liver. A certain amount of alcohol consumption can cause scarring of the liver. Fatty liver disease can cause scarring of the liver. And then there are a number of other rarer conditions that can cause scarring of the liver. And cirrhosis um, may mean that someone is otherwise completely normal, uh, uh, but they have imaging or a biopsy that shows their liver is scarred. Uh, But sometimes when someone has cirrhosis, they can have problems as a result result of not having a good liver function so so they may their body might not handle fluid well uh, they may develop a, a backup of fluid on their body that's called edema and ascites they can develop confusion they can develop weight loss Uh, and they can develop a number of complications related to cirrhosis. One complication of cirrhosis is that it can increase the risk of liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma uh, or primary liver cancer or hepatoma. Uh, So, uh, liver cancer, primary liver cancer can occur uh, when somebody in a normal liver, when someone has no evidence of cirrhosis, but that's relatively rare more often uh liver cancer occurs in a background of cirrhosis
1: excellent um thank you um so um a question from uh one of our- uh, particip- of our online participants um So this would be for um, Dr. Um, Saab. What are the risks and side effects of surgery on my liver to remove tumors?
2: Uh, Can you repeat that again, the last part? Yes,
1: I'm sorry. What are the risks and side effects of surgery on my liver to remove tumors?
2: All right, yeah, good question. So in general, uh, liver surgeons are very um, highly specialized, so... um, so the risk um, is, is really minimal. It's not um, a very high risk in good hands, and most of the liver surgeons are linked to major academic centers. Um, so that's why um, I would consider it as a low-risk surgery if the patient is deemed um, surgical, then they, of course, meet with them to discuss um, all the risk involved. But based on my experience, and Dr. Harding also can weigh in, um, our liver surgeons everywhere around the United States are very experienced, and we haven't heard about any increased risk of complications, uh, in particular um, for liver cancer, more than any other um, disease site. Dr. Harding, do you want to
1: add to that?
3: No, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I agree with those comments and in general, you know, uh, if you you know have a, a liver cancer that may be entertained with, you know, removal of the liver, I think it's best to consider uh, evaluation at, at a transplant center or a center that specializes in removal of tumors of the livers, you know, it, it's very important to have that multidisciplinary review.
1: Thank you. And this looks like a bit of a, um, a feedback on the other question, but a little bit different. Um, what is the prog- So, Dr. Harding, what is the prognosis after a liver transplant? Even if it cures the liver cancer, doesn't the patient still have hepatitis C? Uh,
3: well, so, you know, liver transplantation, you know, I think when you look at it across the United States... Um, I mean, for for all of the patients that have liver cancer, which is about, like, 40,000 cases, something like this, maybe 1 to 2,000, you know, people per year will have a transplant for liver cancer. Uh, And in general, as Dr. Kassab said, when one has a liver transplant, um, the idea is to get rid of the cirrhosis uh, as well as to get rid of the liver cancer. And the survival, you know, Data at a year is very good for those patients that have had a liver transplant for liver cancer that is within what's called the milan criteria um uh, and then there are some extended criteria that are being used so um yeah I, 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 in general the the prognosis is is good for patients that are having um a liver uh transplant for tumors that are within the criteria. There's a lot of investigation now uh, as to w- how much liver cancer is, um, is uh, how much is the right amount. Uh, and there are some instances where someone may have a tumor that's out of the criteria, but it can be shrunk down with embolization or other treatments, and, and, and then they may be able to go for transplant.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Um, And we have another question, and this is for Dr. Kassab. Um, If you have one big tumor and two small ones and have had Y90 treatments, len has been ordered, would you suggest anything else in combination with the len at this point? And Dr. Kassab, if you could just answer this in a general way, because I realize um, this is fine. of course, we would recommend this, uh, our colleague go back to their um, treating healthcare team. But just to give some guidelines and even questions to ask, or.
2: Sure, sure. So the question is revolving around multifocal disease, meaning, you know, multiple tumors still limited to the liver. I have to assume there is nothing outside the liver or into into the portal veins. So in general, for multiple tumors, <clears throat> Atrium-90 um, is um, an acceptable, you know, kind of uh, treatment modality if patients cannot undergo chemoembolization or TACE. So for other audience who really don't know the difference between both basically, both of them are in um, catheter treatment inside of the liver. One injects chemotherapy inside the tumors directly, it's called TAFE. The other one injects radi- radiation beads, and the radiation beads are named Atrium 90 or Y90. So, why in the field is uh, Doing more of the TASE procedures to inject chemotherapy. In some cases where you know, patients could have many tumors or very large tumors, um, atrium 90 has been proposed as an alternative. So, whenever um, any patient undergoes um, either one of them, either TASE or atrium 90, from the oncology standpoint, Um, We have to discuss it in a team manner to make sure the tumors were covered by the procedure. If not, we may add, um, we get all of these counsels, me and Dr. Harding, all the time at our institutions. Then we may add some drugs, you know, to go wherever blood goes and address the rest of the tumors that were not treated. If the patient had the treatment already and um, it's been a while, we get another scan to see if the tumors have responded, in which case we just observe them. So as you mentioned, Carolyn, it really depends on the specific scenario. But these are the outlines. If the catheter treatment addressed all tumor load, we wait to get a scan and assess response to therapy. Otherwise, if some tumors are not treated, there is always a room to discuss in a multidisciplinary manner and add um, oral or IV drugs.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, And a question for... um Ms. Berden, um, let's see, um, will my diet change after treatment? And, again, if you could just address this in a general way, um, because, of course, everyone's treatment is slightly different, but if you could just comment and even just the role of dietitians in helping.
4: Um, yeah, just like Carolyn said, it's very independent, Um for each patient as they go through it because each patient presents with different circumstances and also um, experiences treatment um, in their unique way and and runs into their own challenges along the way. Um, But in general, um, you know, the ideal situation is being able to tolerate um, a balanced diet throughout your treatment. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, there might be times where modifications can be made and need to be made during treatment. Sometimes those do last beyond the treatment, um, just depending on the patient's Comorbidities and response to therapy. So, um, the best thing to do is work with your healthcare team on this. Um, see what your unique needs are, and um, based on the treatment you're having, some challenges you uh, potentially might be facing.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Well, this has been an extraordinary call. I know we could go on for a good part of the afternoon with all the questions we have still haven't been answered, but we, we do have to end at some point and so um, I'll conclude. Um, so I do want to thank our speakers. First of all, they've been extraordinary and so although they can't hear us applauding, we are applauding them. And also um, I want to thank all of our participants, uh, our online participants who asked, really asked a lot of good questions um, and really helped to um, expand the call and, and some of the um, concerns that you each may have. So I did say that if we didn't get you a question, I'd give you some suggestions of how to get your questions answered. So of course, the first thing, of course, is your healthcare team. We never want to um, sidestep them. They actually, of course, know the most about you. So I do recommend that you, even those who asked questions today, please take them back to your healthcare team um, and ask them the question again. Sometimes it's your role play, if you're asking the questions of your healthcare team, they do need to know what your questions are, of course. But I know you all like to go to credible sites to ask questions. And so um, I often recommend also the National Cancer Institute as a a reputable space to go to for your questions. Um, It has an 800 number and also has a website. Um, And what's neat about their website is that it actually has a live chat feature so that anyone from anywhere in the world can go to that website. Um, It asks for, it says live chat or do you want help now? And if you click on that, Yes. Um, it, they will ask when their information specialist comes up. The little box comes up, and you can post your question, and then they will go through their database and get you answers to your questions, and really continue a dialogue with you online about that. So that can be very helpful to many of you as a resource. Now, in addition, um, of course, if you would like to pursue some supportive counseling services from cancer care. Um, um, take advantage of any of the programs that we have here, you can contact Cancer Care, um, speak to one of our oncology social workers, visit our, go to our helpline, help um, our helpline, and actually, um, as well as visit our website. Now, at the conclusion of the program today, you're all going to be getting an evaluation form. Actually, probably tomorrow you'll get the evaluation form. And the evaluation form will not just be an evaluation form of the program, but also will give you all the resources that the speakers mentioned, the resources I've given just now, but also um, Ms. Rodriguez's resources, any of the resources the doctor mentioned in terms of clinical trials, all of that will be available to you, um, in addition to all of the collaborating organizations as well. So you really will have a cornucopia of places to contact um, for f- further help with your questions. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.